Welcome back to the extended episode of Stirring the Cultural Pot. My name is Elin Madhabji, and I'll continue to be your host. It's clear that this opening of the mind can allow for moments of education. And education about other cultures, just like Emmanuel had that moment with Peking Duck or the moments I have with my grandma, these moments allow us to get better in touch with that cultural context, but more importantly, the people that make it what it is, the people that live it and that were born in it. Emmanuel makes a great point that diplomacy can learn something from this. We know a lot of effort is made in the highest kitchens of the land, of the heads of states, the cooks for the embassies, for those national initiatives, or even in the context you might find yourself in, attending culturally diverse events. We see how culture is spread through food. But I wonder if more ground can be made through fusion. After many years of diplomacy being a part of my life, I've noticed that a key aspect is listening this traditional public diplomacy approach of culinary diplomacy is very one way. It's usually a state or an actor communicating to their guest, to someone else, about their culture or a message or an identity. It's a one-way street. And I wanted to understand a little better if there was actually some, we could call it an untraditional approach to culinary diplomacy or something that broke down these barriers. To be honest, I found it difficult to find examples where this general stereotype of culture was not used when trying to communicate through food. But one thing I did find was this very interesting article from Paul Rockaware, and it's called Korean Tacos. And he talks about back in 2010, before this street food fusion craze kind of exploded the way it has now, that on the streets of LA, someone opened up a tent that sold Korean tacos. And it was right in between where the Korean and Asian community lived in LA and where the Mexican community lived. And this novel idea can actually be traced as maybe a core of the expansion of fusion food and street food capitalizing on these very outside-the-box fusion ideas. And it was an interesting tool that ended up bringing the Mexican and Korean community together. As untraditional as it may be, it almost required something so out-of-the-box to do that. And ironically enough, Soon after that happened, Korea itself started their public diplomacy campaign through food, their culinary campaign, to try and spread their food and ideas through the world. But it was completely different in approach. It was very traditional. When a country tries to spread its identity through food, it takes almost the most watered-down, generic stereotype of that food and culture to try and communicate it. Perhaps that's because it's simple, but I think it's also limiting. We need to remember that in diplomacy, be it at a table for negotiation, at a table for peace, at a table for conversation, or at a table to simply just share and build relationships, simply being at the table is not the beginning of the end. It's just the end of the beginning. And food has that ability, once we're at the table, to set the tone for what's to come, to perhaps even change the theme and type of conversation that's to be had, to build an interaction that otherwise would be impossible. So when you think of Korean tacos, the conversations and relationships between these two communities over Korean tacos was most certainly different than if it had just been over tacos or kimchi, right? So then I started getting curious about what they actually do eat at these summits. 
And then I found myself looking at the menu that was served at the 2019 G20 summit in Japan. And of course, you know, Japan with its incredibly rich history of culinary tradition had some incredible items to show basically the best that they had to offer. We're talking deep fried citrus spiced anglerfish, you know, charcoal baked Tajima beef wrapped in bamboo, this kind of thing. And to drink, you know, different types of sake. After dinner, it was a selection of three or four different green teas. As fantastic as that was in showing the best of Japan through their food, the only item on the menu that explicitly nodded to the global nature of the event and their guests and what they were actually trying to achieve was a coffee. And this coffee was a blend of 20 different beans from 20 different countries. And I thought that was brilliant. Even if you just think of the idea of that, that's exciting. Who even knows if it tastes good? But being there with your 19 other buddies from different countries, drinking a coffee, perhaps even sourced from a number of them, that does something. That does something different than simply being served food of someone else. In a way, it becomes our food. So yeah, we can call it fusion cuisine, but it's essentially food that listens. And it's food that allows its patrons to be part of a collaborative experience rather than just a customer. It allows them to perhaps even be more comfortable to open up and share because now there is some sense of equality, perhaps just in a cup of coffee. Now, I'm sure as I'm saying this, perhaps you can think of moments from your life where something similar happened. I can, of course, try and draw a lame anecdote to explain it to you, but why do that when Ritu can, of course, tell a way better one? But I'm a diplomat. You may have studied diplomacy, but I'm a diplomat and I know how to handle hurdles. So this is my all time favorite story. I think Emmanuel already knows it. But, um, you know, when Diva opened, uh, Diva was an Italian restaurant which opened in 2000. And India had just opened up. Travel was really not very big and people still knew what we call the Indian Italian, which was only about pizza and pasta. So the name of the restaurant Diva, because I like to believe I'm a diva, but also in Punjabi, uh, which is the, one of the languages in Delhi, it means a light. In, it's also a Punjabi word. So it's the early week, first week, I have no clients in and a couple walks in with two kids and they sit down and uh, water is served, a hot basket of focaccia comes in with some olive pate and some olive oil. They open the menu and they all are looking at each other. That's the only table I have that night. And they come and they look very embarrassed. They say, look, we are very sorry. We ate away all your bread, but we thought this was an Indian restaurant. But obviously it's an Italian restaurant. We don't like Italian food. We don't know Italian food. So can we pay for this bread and uh, we'll go somewhere else? For me, as I said, it was first week, no tables. Uh, debts are piling up. Tomorrow, someone will come, put a gun on my head. I will sign a check, which will bounce back like a rubber band. I needed their money. I needed their money so desperately. So I said, look, let's do one thing. You sit, I'm going to cook you something, which is Italian, but if you don't like it, you don't have to pay for it. Okay. And then you can go to another restaurant. So in my head, okay, good Punjabi family. They like their food robust. They like chicken. So I decided to prepare a polo ala cacciatore for them, which is a very simple recipe of chicken hunter style with lots of tomatoes, herbs, 
olive, caper. So giving all the things which are the oom factors. And I prepared this plate for them and I sent it to the table. They ate it, they loved it, they paid for it. And this was 23 years ago. I have never had polo a la cacciatore on my menu. They come back at least once a week and we still prepare polo a la cacciatore for them. So yes, uh, it's the same hurdle we've had in Italy where people came and asked for chicken tikka masala, which we all know is a British invention. They wanted to know if I serve Balti cuisine, uh, which again is a Bangladeshi concept. They wanted to know why I don't have chicken madras on my menu. And as again, using food diplomacy, try it, like it. And if you don't like it, I will prepare you something else. What I've learned, uh, everyone has a certain taste. Everyone has a certain liking. It doesn't make it a good or a bad liking. It's just not what I like to serve per se. So my tolerance level, I must admit, has increased quite a bit in the last uh, 32 years that I've been doing this. But hurdles, again, my dear boy, I think somewhere you passed on your education to me and I've used it very, very well. Well, I would say congratulations. And it's, it's good to know it's being used somewhere. Yes. <laughs> but, um, I've actually, I have um, one of my, uh, one of the people I work with, he's um, Bosniak and he has a saying, uh, a Bosniak saying, which is if it's about taste, we don't speak in the sense that yes, we all have different tastes. You like to eat this, you like to do that. Uh, but we're all equal in our, I guess, and how valid our tastes are. Um, and I mean, you know, to be honest, uh, one of the things that I think Emmanuel and, and Yuri to have both mentioned is in moments of difference, um, the place you started was at some sort of a, a core of, of commonality. So whether it's Emmanuel saying, okay, well, uh, Belgian cuisine and Asian cuisine, okay, well, there's both seafood and there's both beer. Okay, we can do something with that, you know? And with you saying, okay, well, it's a Punjab family, so maybe they would appreciate this chicken dish. Okay, we can, we can start there. Um, yeah, to, to be honest, uh, it, it, we don't need to look too far and wide in the world today to see where uh, thinking like that would be useful. When I said before that getting to the table isn't the end, I said that because it's kind of assumed that we're hoping to achieve something by the time we leave it. So food in that sense can be the conduit for that transformation. I know before we've talked and learned about how food can be used as a bridge between conflicting parties that are fighting legacies of war and stereotypes. And then we even touched on how food comforts and can heal in a time of crisis. And there's one interesting example that I want to share with you about that. In the immediate post 9-11 period in the United States, for example, studies showed that the consumption of comfort foods and sweets went up as much as 15% and the sales of cookbooks soared. This also came along with a massive hike in sales of specialty foods and it really became clear that eating at home with the family, with neighbors within the community, became more meaningful than ever. And while we're talking about something 20 years ago, I realize as I'm saying this now that maybe one day someone will talk about 2020 like that as well with regards to food. I realize that a lot of our eating and food habits have changed dramatically in the past little while. But it's not just simply how we eat food and how we eat food that's changed. It's also how we interact with the idea. Not too long ago, a few years ago, celebrity chef Alton Brown 
talked about the rise in food TV and food media consumption also after 9-11, because apparently people were flocking en masse to the TV network while every other channel was showing depressing and shocking images and politics and global security was everywhere. And the only refuge on TV was the food channel. So as a result, the food network itself restructured itself to actually cater to a general audience and started to realize why they were there. And now you fast forward 20 plus years, we can see just how far food media has come. That is in a way kind of rooted in the power it has to put us at ease, to comfort us, and maybe even inspire us. So I wanted to understand this healing power a little better. Now, food itself heals. It depends how you take the medicine. If you take the medicine, I always say the same thing. I'd rather have good kids. And I'm really anti-McDonald's and anti-fast food and things like this. This is not something which I, I like to see in my life. However, I fancy the kids sitting down, having a real good time, having conversation, and they're sharing a bag of chips from McDonald's, but really they're enjoying it. They show it. It's great. It's, I love it. If there's this couple coming, they're very healthy and they're just going to share salad, but they're just on their phone all the time. They're so worried that they're going to make a phone call they're on the internet, and there's no, no presence. There is no, I would use the word spirituality into that, yes. conscious of eating. I think that's where food heals. Food heals, obviously, uh, we do. We, we, we can talk about this for many hours. I think from a yogic point of view, I teach yoga and I love yoga, so I have an interest into, into, into that, that field. Uh, it's not limited to yoga, but obviously, uh, we, we, we can talk about this, Ayurvedic specifically. Uh, but does food heals? Yes, food heals. Food heals. What do we do when you are sad? You open the fridge and you stuff yourself with chocolate. <laughs> Or ice cream, or depending. That's what we do. Yes, food heals. I have no doubt. Of course. I mean, I think uh, I always say food has power, healing power, as well as every other sort of power. When you enter a restaurant, you may be the president of the country, you may be the biggest politician, you may be the richest man. But when you're sitting in a restaurant somewhere, the power is with me. My food can either make you happy or make you really sad and you can do nothing about it. What, you, what position you hold, what you may be outside that restaurant is immaterial. The person who's sitting next to you may be someone you would never even say hello to in your normal day, but because you're sitting in my restaurant and I'm serving food to both the table, there's a sense of equality. So yes, when you talk about uh, food making people at odds. Tell me one problem which has not been sorted over a meal. Two people may be fighting. You sit together for a meal and try to discuss it. It'll always go easy only for one reason. Because food somewhat makes us drop our defenses. And that is something which I think is a great power food has. That is more, I shall say, in an abstract way where healing is concerned. But as Emmanuel also pointed out, when we are happy, the only thing that makes us happier is a celebration with friends, with people we love and food. When we are sad, COVID time, the delivery business went crazy. 
everyone was ordering food. When I talked about young people not cooking, the only time they were cooking was the COVID period, two years when they were cooking nonstop because there was a sense of calmness. When I make a risotto is one of my favorite things to cook, okay? There's a reason why. There's a reason because for 15 minutes, I cannot leave the pot. I cannot be distracted. I have to gently stir it. For me, it's almost like doing vipassana. It's almost like a 15-minute meditation where I have to leave all my thoughts aside and my total focus is just gently stirring the pot. So whether it's cooking, whether it's eating, there is a healing power to it. It's almost like a mother's love. It's almost like the attention that we crave for, that little love, warmth, comfort that we need. And when we can't find it elsewhere, we'll find it in a bowl of cereal. We will find it in a chocolate ice cream chip, whatever it may be. And that's the unique and amazing power of food. And just to give you an example, you know, I have a restaurant in the Italian Cultural Center in New Delhi. And it was a big joke when we opened this restaurant 22 years ago that uh, the Italians needed an Indian woman to run their Italian restaurant. And uh, for me, what I've seen, I think what no other restaurant of ours could do was how Italian culture, Italian world opened up to Indians just via eating, just via eating in this particular restaurant, you know, because they felt they were in Italy, they were comfortable, they thought they were eating what was coming straight from grandma's kitchen, and that opened up a whole new world to them. And I think for the Italians, it was one of the best ideas they could have ever come up with is to open a restaurant inside the cultural center, because the reality is the best way to understand a culture or a country or its religion or its politics is through its food. So don't be afraid and you are going to conquer. I jump on what Ritu said. If you let your guard down, fear, I agree with you, fear, the fear of unknown, the fear of not knowing what that person, which is not the same race, not the same color, they're the same whatever than me, I'm a bit fearful, but with food, if the food is cooked with love, and I think if it's, the message is passed that way, there's a message of trust into it. When I didn't like mushroom when I was a child, and my, my mother used to feed me with mushroom, and I really didn't like them. And uh, one day she said, look, let me cook it a different way for you. She did, I can't remember, she did something different, soup or whatever. And she said, do you trust me? I said, yeah, of course I trust you. Let's taste it again. I taste it and I, I realized a message of love which was coming through her really hard uh, effort to, to, to try to make me understand where she wanted to, to pass as a message. Food allows us to pass messages which sometimes are a little bit difficult to pass to people. And as I said, cooking for someone is extremely intimate. You can do a lot of things and a lot of good things. So that's, I think, maybe the message to pass for me is that food brings us closer somehow. Today, we've used a lot of adjectives. We've talked about themes and dynamics, but let's not forget that with us, we have two very accomplished and talented chefs who can teach us a lot from their perspective. So before we concluded, I couldn't help but maybe give in to that foodie inside of me for the sake of the foodie inside of you and 
kind of challenge them for some very practical information, a practical insight into how they would react to an intercultural group of people walking into one of their restaurants and if their goal was to try and bring them together. Exactly. Yeah, one and the same, maybe. Um, but uh, Emmanuel, if you were to say, try and say, you know, you were at your restaurant and um, you had all the time and ingredients in the world and you were you saw that there was, uh, say, someone from Singapore about to eat with someone from Belgium, uh, what would you serve uh, that pair and, and, and why? I think... <laughs> That's a good question, actually. One of the things in Singapore, unfortunately, that's a specific thing. And fortunately for us, we do not have, we don't produce much ingredients. So that wouldn't be an ingredient. I could say, hey, look, this is an asparagus from Singapore or something specific. We have teas, we've got spices, we've got different things. But what's very unique about Singapore, it's this trilogy of culture, which lives together. Uh, you know, we've got the Chinese, obviously, we've got Indians, we've got Malays. And those three cultures in Singapore are really the, the strength of our country, you know, that uh, we call it the racial harmony. Uh, it's, it's, it's really beautiful. Belgium has three cultures, Dutch, French, Walloons, and a little part of German. So we have somehow some form of connection. If I had to play with something, I would probably play with that to say, hey, you know, we are far away, but we are some similarities to small countries, three different cultures, three different languages, three different background and everything and then see how we could integrate that together. I would probably cook, I don't know, uh, a French because or Belgian crab, something like this with some of chili, a chili crab, which is Singapore, one of Singapore's special dish, but trying to use uh, one of the ingredients which come from, from my hometown. And that's at the end of the day, if you go a little bit deeper into what we do, I think there's a lot of common things which we can share, we don't always realize. Well, well I mean, thank you for enlightening us. I guess I, I did not expect you to, to, yeah, like you said, read into it, find a, a, a deeper, perhaps uh, more uh, thematic cultural line that could, that could bring uh, those two people together over that table. That is um, a very interesting take. And, and hey, maybe an idea for one of your restaurants, who's to say? I don't know. <laughs> uh, now, uh, Ritu, perhaps uh, now it's your turn. Um, say yeah. at one of your restaurants. Much easier for me. Yeah, say, say an Italian uh, uh, and an Indian came to eat together. What would you serve them? Oh, my God. So easy. Not difficult at all. So uh, I would do a ravioli filled with bengan bharta, the roasted aubergine from India because it goes very well with a ravioli. And I will just do with a little butter sage sauce with just a hint of cumin. So both the Indian and the Italian get a little taste of their own home and a little taste of their guests home. Then it'll be followed by a kulcha, a naan, but stuffed with mozzarella and gorgonzola. Okay, we like it with paneer, uh, but use the Italian cheese in there and so again, give these two guys a little sense of, all right, we are doing all right. I think we will finish off the meal with a very nice Italian gelato, but with a little bit of rose essence, a little bit of rose petal and some cardamom. And there we have a perfect meal where the Italian and the Indian both will be satiated. They both will be within their comfort zone and yet they will explore this other part of the world, which anyway, I think, as they all say, Indians are the Italians of Asia and the Italians are the Indians of Europe. 
I can see that. I can see why you'd say that. That is uh, a, a wonderful and, and delicious menu. Uh, maybe one day uh, I'll be lucky enough to try it from you one oh, day. Yeah. I love that. Let's see. Let's see how good you are. And we'll take a call about that. <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds good. By virtue of this podcast existing and probably the length of this episode, there's clearly a lot to be said about diplomacy. And I think, unfortunately, today, with the way that the world is reacting to several events, we have very clear-cut examples of maybe where diplomacy has failed outright, and we're seeing what the consequences of that are. We're maybe seeing criticisms of diplomacy where we can see how many consider it to be lip service or high-level political legacy of the past that is detached from what's actually happening to real people on the ground. But we also need to remember that diplomacy, the tool, is very important for you and me. When we use diplomacy, you and I, in our daily lives, to interact with the people around us, the cultures we confront, but also in our jobs, when we are trying to build connections with outside stakeholders or maybe even change the minds of people we work with to try and move towards some collective goal, when we're the diplomats, I think there's especially something we can learn from food culinary diplomacy and these chefs. In a sense, if more diplomats were chefs and more chefs were diplomats, the world might be a little more of a connected place. Not because we all agree, but because we're listening, because we're taking the time to eat with each other and share with each other and engage with some sort of common experience. So the point that I'd like to emphasize is that if we understand food better, we understand people better. And if we understand people better, we understand diplomacy better. So with that final note, I think we can untuck our napkins, push out our chairs, and call it a day. It's been fantastic revisiting this topic again. It's been an immense pleasure once more talking to such interesting and engaging people such as Chef Ritu and Chef Emmanuel. I'd like to thank them. I'd like to thank ASIM for reaching out to spur this topic once more. And I'd like to thank you. Please do reach out to us at podcasthjd at gmail.com if you have any ideas, any comments, any criticisms. So thank you so much for listening and till next time.